This is not another green podcast. Hello, Maurizia. So good to see you again. Hi, Katrin. Yes, we're back in this constellation for recording an episode. Mm -hmm. Which so how nice. nice. Always a pleasure to work with you. <laughs> I can only say the same back, indeed. And today we have a really special guest, so it was also a lot of fun to record the interview with you. Indeed. So who are we talking to today? So today we interview Gerdine uh, de Vries, and again she's very close to, to our home. So last time when we were together we talked to Stefano uh, in Leiden, and uh, this time we were in Delft and uh, yeah, talked to a researcher on environmental psychology from the Technical University of Delft, our other alma mater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so well, let's not uh, wait any longer and just get to the interview. Enjoy! Hello, Gerdine. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us today. Maybe you could briefly introduce yourself so that our listeners know what we'll be talking about today. Yeah, so thank you for the invitation uh, to be uh, on this podcast. Uh, yes, my name is uh, Gerdine de Vries. I'm an associate professor at Delft University of Technology, and I work at the Faculty of uh, Technology, Policy and Management. Um, Within this faculty, I, I do research and education, of course, I also teach. Uh, and my main topic of my research is climate uh, psychology. So I do research on behavior uh, in all different uh, levels and with all different stakeholders um, relating to uh, energy efficiency, um, climate adaptation, energy transition. And I also um, uh, am the director of our uh, faculty's energy transition lab. Um, furthermore, I have a background in social psychology. I did my studies in uh, Leiden, Leiden University. So this is a nice, also bridge between um, um, in the, for the master industrial ecology because I work in uh, Delft, but I did my own studies in, in Leiden. And I did a PhD on uh, communication and perceptions on large environmental technologies. So that really fits with what I'm doing now. But I just changed universities and also changed perspective a bit because these universities and, of course, also the, uh, the type of research we do uh, differs a little bit. But that's, I think, in general, um, a bit of my background. What's exactly the relation between climate psychology and environmental psychology? Is it that climate psychology is part of environmental psychology or what exactly is the relation and what is environmental psychology? And the difference between environmental, climate psycho environmental psychology and climate psychology, actually, there's not that large of a difference. Climate psychology is actually more of a brand that uh, happened to, uh, to me <laughs> when I was interviewed by a, a newspaper. They called me a climate psychologist uh, because they thought it would be uh, clearer to the audience um, to grasp that, that I research behavior related to climate change. Um, And actually, you could see it as a, as a small part of environmental psychology, because I'm not sure how it is now. But when I did my studies, environmental psychology was a little bit broader than only related to climate change. It was also related to people in, within their natural environment. So there were also, um, uh, we also learned about research on um, how um, the influence of nature uh, um, um, reacts to people in hospitals, for instance, These kinds of things of, or uh, restoration, when people walk inside nature, what does that do with them? And I think my type of research is actually very much related to energy transition, climate change, climate adaptation. 
but the, 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 it's not really um, uh, like a course or a, a direction within psychology yet. Although I heard that there are um, um, ideas to 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 create masters on climate psychology, and um, there's also this website klimaatpsychologie.com uh, in the Netherlands, where a lot of psychologists unite who do something with climate and psychology but that is even broader than what i do because there are also clinical psychologists there who work for instance with um, people who feel depressed uh, by climate change etc so that's a completely different branch of psychology um but actually i also get a lot of comments on the term climate psychology because it's so yeah maybe too narrow or maybe too broad, but yeah, it, it, it works uh, as a label and as a type of uh, brand uh, to, 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 to show in a short sentence what I do instead of I'm a social psychologist doing research on human behavior in the climate uh, related to climate change. That's a bit long. So. So you yourself um, don't really look at the impacts of climate change on the human psyche. That's colleagues of you who are looking into that. Yeah, so the, the the clinical part of the, um, so what does it do with you and your emotions and how you um, uh, respond to fear and hope, etc., cetera, uh, is not typically what I'm uh, researching. No, so, so I'm, more, I'm researching more the general uh, human responses and uh, psychological factors that um, can explain certain types of behavior within the energy transition. But that could be... Uh, The, the response of homeowners who need to invest in their houses to make them more sustainable. But that could also be the behavior of engineers that have to design new technologies for um, these matters or politicians that have to make decisions on, um, on climate change or climate adaptation. So it's a very broad field, but it's more on general biases, heuristics, um, uh, preferences, perceptions, And not so much about um, emotions or uh, depression or whatever. So in your research on the energy transition, what are important behaviors that you find important for the energy transition? Are there any patterns uh, that are found in research uh, of human behavior that are um, of relevance in the energy transition? Yeah, so there are, are several patterns and there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of information already known. There are, of course, more researchers in the world who study uh, um, the factors that influence sustainable behavior. Um, and uh, what I do is I, I, I tend to look at the barriers, so not so much the facilitators, but, but what, what holds people back. And my main topic within that field is that I look at the, the hassle factor. So um, people can find a lot of things that they have to do and decisions they have to make difficult and they perceive that as that a lot of effort that they need to do there's a lot of hassle in Dutch that is gedoe um, and uh, the, the other side that's related a bit to that is is habit so I look at habit and hassle so hassle is is actually a very a large component we see that coming back in research a lot but the empirical research to this factor is lacking so we try to make it more and more uh, we study it more and more make it more um, quantitatively measurable to see how large the influence of this component is on people's inaction. Um, because there's a lot of uh, theoretical um, 
uh, stuff about this. So, so we, we, and we also see that, for instance, asking for money, subsi- subsidies with municipalities that people can get or subsidies from uh, national governments to um, have a more sustainable life or to do sustainable investments. We see that a lot, of, for instance, that there's a lot of hassle. So people find it very difficult to complete these forms, to ask for money. And as a result, because these hassle factors are small micro stressors, um, people can actually be hauled down and don't ask for the subsidy and don't invest in their houses. So they have these good intentions maybe in the beginning and they know that they want to be more sustainable, but then in the end, uh, they don't take that last step because of things like hassle. And it could be... um, mainly perceptions that the people perceive a lot of hassle and a lot of barriers, but that in the end, um, it's not that much of a work, but then already the perceptions can hold them back. Do you then have suggestions on how people could be convinced of more green behavior or how to break down those barriers? Yeah, so we, um, uh, of course, as researchers, we, we, we study behavior and we share our insights with the policymakers who have to make the decisions on how to implement it or the, or the, the, the engineers. Um, but what we see is that it might help sometimes for people to break down these um, larger decisions or larger movements into smaller steps. And um, uh, yeah, so, so that, they, that they for themselves write down, okay, if, I, if my end goal uh, or my, the, the end, end goal of my green journey is to have a net zero house, what kind of steps do I need to take? And then it could be isolation or solar panels or heat pump or maybe all of them. But then you have to break that down in smaller steps and see, okay, what, what do I need to do to get to, for instance, only isolation? You need to have maybe a, a contractor. You need to buy um, um, uh, building materials. Maybe you want to ask for the subsidies. You have to check if your house is uh, suitable for those kinds of investments. Um, so break that down in those kinds of steps and, and, and use them one by one. So that can already also help for people to imagine that they take those steps. That also makes it easier um, to get there. And um, yeah, so and, and there's, of course, a lot of other research also going on on biases that people have other barriers or denial or all these uh, um, psychological mechanisms that come into play if people, uh, um, uh, for instance, um, aim for a certain behavior but don't get there so there's cognitive dissonance there are all these kinds of psychological mechanisms that also play a role um, so you have to tackle them as well so it's it's a really difficult actually and and luckily uh, more and more policymakers say that the energy transition is not only a technological or a financial challenge but also a behavioral challenge so also from in, in at least the Dutch uh, government there's a lot of um, increasing interest to psychology into a psychology and they also ask uh, for the advice of psychologists to to test um, policies and to see okay can we improve policies by psychological insights or behavioral insights so is the hassle factor mainly something that occurs on the individual level that individuals feel oh it's so much of a hassle to uh, install solar panels or is that also something you see on a policymaker level and that policymakers think, oh, it's so much of a hassle to do something? Yeah, definitely. And we don't um, have empirical data on that yet, but that's it's certainly one of my directions of interest because uh, policymakers are also human. So every human or every person 
uh, every earthling, I sometimes say, every person that, that lives on the earth, ha- of course, has a um, a role in the energy transition and has to do with has to deal with climate change. And for policymakers, that role might be, uh, besides also maybe uh, uh, being a mother or a father or a homeowner, um, they also have a role of making policy and having uh, to make decisions on um, what to do and what not to do. And especially within policymaking, you see that hassle factor could play a large role because changing policies can be a lot of hassle, uh, maybe changing laws or have to make decisions for people in a country uh, comes with a lot of responsibility and, and uh, a hassle in decision making. Maybe you have to convince other people of your ideas. Uh, it's not that easy. There are also habits there and it might be a conservative environment maybe with people saying we have done this for so long in this way and we have all these organizations that inform us that it might be time sometimes to radically change and make a radically new decision and of course that's a hassle for for people are there approaches in which um, policies do incorporate the, the knowledge from again from psychologists so for example that um i don't know the subsidy forms are built up in a way that is more acting uh, encountering this this uh, hassle factor or i heard about uh, such things such as nudging or something like that like in which ways are your insights incorporated in policies yeah yeah that's 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 increasing so um uh, often psychologists are um, asked to be on a panel for instance to to be involved in policy making um <clears throat> not only on the national level but also on other levels um, so I also do that, so that I'm involved in, this, in, in projects to inform policymakers about how we can use behavioral insights for energy policies. Um, but I'm also membering uh, an, uh, a platform from the International Energy Agency, which is an, a large international organization with all types of platforms and task forces. And I think for now, for two or three years already, I'm the Dutch expert in that platform working on behavioral insights and energy policies. And then we are with an international group um, creating um, tools for uh, all kinds of governments throughout the world, uh, how they can use behavioral insights in their energy policy. So we created a report that was published um, December 2020, I think. And we are now in the middle of making a a toolbox, uh, a a toolkit, uh, which is online. And it's kind of a choice Uh, platform where policymakers can go in, they have a certain question or challenge or target or whatever, they want to make policy and they want to make use of behavioral insights and then they can click on every uh, choice they have to make and, and they get informed. And we are thinking about making creating also web workshops around it or maybe a, a MOOC, a massive open online course. Um, but yeah, it might be interesting also to to say that we have a, a webinar soon, I think May 20, about this. So people from The Behavioralist, that's a company in, uh, in the UK, helped us with creating this toolkit. We sent the, the, the first results. So it might be interesting also for people who are interested in this topic and listen to this podcast to, to join the, that webinar. What role do you think will climate psychology play in the in the future in for the energy transition, but for the sustainability transition in general? Do you think it will become even bigger and more relevant? Or, Yeah, if I look at the trends that we see from the past year, so I'm, I'm in this field now for, um, yeah, since I started, I think 12, 13 years. And in the beginning, it was 
a very small minor part of research projects with so many, a lot of money of, for research went to technology or to um, economics. And then the, the social part often was a small part of the research project. And we see that a lot of the funders, so the large uh, instances that, that give the money to research also ask increasingly for behavioral insights. So our role in research and the findings that we can um, um, create and, and give are more and more, and and I also see the interest growing from uh, the policymakers, but also from the industry. So it, I increasingly get invitations to give masterclasses for, for instance, uh, energy companies, um, because they also want to increase their knowledge on uh, on behavioral uh, insights and psychology. And I think in the past it was seen psychology was also seen also by engineers, for instance, as, as clinical psychology. And I think it's becoming more and more clear that the field is so so much broader, and that we actually can add something to the the broader uh, yeah uh, uh, palette. <laughs> so the the, the 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 color pattern of uh, things that we can uh, do in 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 research and also in in design. And I think also that that um, multidisciplinary research teams are growing and there's more and more interest in that. There's such a thing as team science uh, that we that we increasingly get to learn that if we work together, that motivates not only the research, but we actually are learning more and more from each other if we have different scientific backgrounds. Um, yeah, we can, we can have, provide more insights. And I think it's also important, and that's my personal mission, to bring uh, this knowledge to a lot larger audience. So that's also why I do these kinds of podcasts, but I'm also, um, uh, if I get invitations for interviews or by media, whatever, I, I, if I, if my uh, calendar allows it, I will do that as far as much as possible because I think otherwise this knowledge stays within academia or within governments. Uh, but I think a lot of the, yeah, uh, lay people, um, and interested in people or normal, just not really interested in whatever people, um, yeah, I can also learn, of course, from what we are doing. But then we have a, have a, um, a role uh, and an obligation to translate all this stuff into easily understandable things and not the yeah, overall scientific terms, etc. That makes it really hard to grasp because then we have hassle to grasp what we actually are doing. Just mentioned that you work together increasingly multidisciplinarily. Um, with what kind of other disciplines are you then actually collaborating? Uh, which not, I would say. <laughs> I, I work with economists, with modelers, with um, statistical um, um, simulation people, sociologists, philosophers, uh, engineers, all types of engineers. So we I work together in projects on different a domain so about mobility but also wind power um, theothermal energy carbon dioxide captured storage uh, architecture people in industrial design people so within delft we, i think i work with almost all faculties and engineers from different faculties because if it, it, it also there increasingly the attention goes to okay if we are in the beginning of a design of a new technology for instance uh, in wind energy um, they more and more learn that we can have, a, as social scientists, have a, also a role in the beginning of the process already. So even when the design is not finished and the technology doesn't exist yet, um, it could be interesting to already uh, yeah, use some social science expertise 
to do kind of uh, a small study on how people perceive this technology. And even in, in the beginning of the of a, of a development, um, people can actually change the design a bit. And if we come and we say, okay, engineer, this is very cool what you are doing and it's very uh, fancy, but um, if uh, you make this design green instead of red, we know that people would accept it uh, more or people would like it more or would even maybe love it. So of course, of course, this is a non-existing example <laughs> because it's not that easy of coloring things. But but we also think about okay, can, how can we actually um, uh, not only say okay, if we create this technology, people um, need to like it. We we are thinking okay, when how can we make it something that people actually love? Maybe we can do some extra or think about things that the technology can also do or bring to a specific area, for instance. That, that solves another issue from people. Maybe it could be a place where people gather in a place that people um, are really a community or need some more cohesion, for instance, then the technology could also play another role instead of only being something related to energy. So it sounds like everyone can benefit from your work and uh, you're collaborating a lot with people. So that's probably also applying to industrial ecologists. What can industrial ecologists learn from your work? What is something they should uh, take into account in their daily work and research? Um, well, actually, I, I, I have a lot of master students uh, that I also from industrial ecology that I supervise. Um, and I think what I, lear- what, 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 I, what I also learned from industrial ecology students, but also what they can learn back is, and I think the master is perfectly created also for that reason, that it's uh, sometimes helpful to take on these uh, interdisciplinary classes and to, to, to look at issues that... Um, um, uh, are related to sustainability or climate change from these different perspectives. I think the the, the program is also uh, rather broad, so you can also pick and choose and say, okay, I like this maybe more than that. So maybe you feel that you're more a psychologist than a um, uh, an engineer or that you like numbers more than a qualitative data. Um, but you can pick and choose. And, and I think, uh, uh, yeah, my advice would be to, to keep this broad perspective and learn from different disciplines and see what you like from those disciplines and learn from it. So for for me personally, when I came to Delft, I also was um, forced to to look at issues more from a system perspective, while I was used as a a psychologist to dive into this micro perspective of the individual and to look at these nice fundamental mechanisms. And I had to take a a much more um, system perspective. And I, I learned a lot from that. And it was also difficult sometimes because I lacked a lot of information. Um, I work a lot with people from a public administration and I have no background in that. So sometimes we literally didn't understand each other. But it's so technologically and digitally wise, there's so much information available. So why would you stick to one discipline? Just go out there, read whatever you like. Everything is available and um, try to educate you for things that you don't know yet. Um, but yeah, that would be my advice. And and yeah, if if I'm I'm um, on social media, so uh, if people like this kind of work, follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. I post a lot, so uh, I think that's the easiest way to uh, use me as a kind of news filter <laughs> and get uh, get more information about this. If you like this uh, this topic, yeah, we'll be sure to link your social media platforms so people can find you easily. Um, before you were mentioning um, in the in the examples of uh, how 
behavior can be influenced. You were mentioning a lot, oh, if you, the example you gave, um, if you make this product green, then people will maybe love it more. How much manipulation is actually involved in environmental, in environmental psychology? Uh, well, that's a good uh, good point. And it's also a point that, that's what I said in the beginning, that we as scientists, of course, only study the behavior and what people do with it afterwards um, is a bit, of course, uh, out of our hands. So people can use what we know um, to influence people be people's behavior for their wantings or likes. So I think... Uh, so um, what I know from the from the government, at least the Dutch government, is that they are very aware of the fact that they don't want to manipulate and that they are uh, taking good care in the rules of transparency. There should always be an opt-out. It should be in the well-being of people, whatever they do. But the, the, yeah, I know that, for instance, um, uh, the nudges that, that, that's the, that they create, they are very open about it. And what I said, there's always an opt-out. But I also know of examples of... of commercial parties that uh, manipulate in a stronger way and they make use of what we know about framing and nudging and other precision techniques in a, in, a, in a way that they actually always did so we as scientists study that manipulation or influencing or whatever behavior but of course it went on before we studied it you know that that uh, car sales people were there uh, for years already before we were interested in the topic so, so um, that's that is really something that at, at least we uh, as scientists are very aware of um, but that's a, yeah, that's a very good point. And we have, of course, within uh, for our research, we have ethical committees uh, and a, a very strong human research ethic board, also in Delft and also in Leiden. Um, and so, if you are a student and you want to do research with this, your research is always being tested by that board, and of course by your supervisors. So, so we make sure that you don't uh, are not going to manipulate. Um, but but uh, yeah yeah it's it's of course we it's out of our hands if if the information that we have and the research that we do is of course publicly available and people can can use that yeah. So, what role do you think can climate psychology still play in the future, or how big is its impact? So, how much more progress could we make in the energy transition if all of these these insight insights would be taken into account? And uh, yeah, that's of course. Um, we don't know what, how it will uh, evolve and what will happen in the future. So I, I guess the fields will grow and will become bigger. Um, uh, also because, yeah, I think more and more psychologists will be hired by companies for because they see the extra added value of of, uh, um, of psychology. Um, but yeah, I think more and more hybrid forms of research will also happen. So we are already in the progress of trying to use psychology more for modeling, for to, to create statistical simulation or mathematical simulations, for instance, um, to also simulate not only technological um, uh, evolutions, but also how the behavior of people fits into that. Uh, but yeah, we don't know. We we see a growing interest. We we also in my department we are hiring extra psychologists because the work is increasing and demand is large. But you never know. This could be like a movement, and then uh, the, the interest maybe slows down. But yeah, personally, I I expect that the more we show that psychology can actually uh, maybe uh, help to accelerate the energy transition by our knowledge, I, I hope we can show that. And that then is, of course, a sign for a lot of people to keep keep psychologists in the in their toolbox. Yeah. 
you are looking particularly at the at the hassles that people are facing um right now that sounded very very optimistic but do you find it hard to stay optimistic or how do you stay optimistic about our future um what do you mean with staying optimistic about the future with the regarding the hassle factor or in general in general that we achieve the the energy transition like right now you sounded very optimistic so uh, i'm assuming and i hope that you are optimistic so in one way i am optimistic and i think that we um uh, still have a chance to um uh to to learn so much about human behavior that that it can be um uh applied and that m maybe a lot of people will also change their behavior on the other hand um as a psychologist and as a scientist i'm i'm interested in in behavior and the, the mechanisms that play a role into ag uh, actions and, and behavior and it could also very much be that we see for instance that people are not capable really of changing their behavior or that they have these Uh, values that they say, okay, I'm, there's a certain amount of comfort that I would like to uh, trade for sustainable behavior and that, that there might be limits to that. So we can actually also, I can imagine that we can also find that. And then the question is, what happens then? What do the policymakers do? What are governments deciding to do? How important do they think it is? And yeah, so we, so we, we cannot, um, Uh, we, we cannot accelerate the energy transition uh, uh, alone as psychologists. We need uh, a team of people with different uh, disciplines and we need knowledge from uh, regulation. Um, we need uh, money. We need technology. So this is a, 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 a broader toolbox. And uh, yeah, we can add, I think, definitely a lot of value as psychologists, um, but, but we cannot do it alone. And of course, if we, if, if, If we don't get the energy efficiency levels that the policymakers uh, agreed upon in the Paris Agreement or something, then we have to think about um, uh, other uh, behavior and other actions. So we are also thinking, of course, in lines of climate adaptation. So there is, of course, also we need to adapt also to a changing world. And therefore is uh, psychology also very useful um, because we we then use our knowledge to guide people maybe in how they can adapt. So maybe it changes a bit from, yeah, how do people change their behavior? I think I still I'm still very optimistic that people can change their behavior and also will change their or are willing to change their behavior. Uh, but we also have to adapt to to, to what is happening in the world. Um, and yeah, so the the, the 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 what the future will bring us. Yeah, we. We, we need to see that, yeah. But I, I, I'm not a fortune teller, so I cannot say if we... People are uh, unique human beings and everybody has their own set of um, mechanisms that can only yeah, do something maybe, or policymakers can only do something to influence that. Yeah. But it's good to hear at least uh, that there is optimism <laughs> and that we can look uh, hopefully uh, to, to towards a good future. And... Also, that collaboration is key. And I think that's also really good to hear over and over again that we can work together to achieve, yeah. to achieve a better future. Thank you so much for being here today and uh, for your interesting answers. Uh, we enjoyed it a lot. Uh, thank you for your time. Yes, thank you very much. 
what a fantastic interview. It was super interesting to talk with her about this. Yeah, unfortunately, David couldn't be here. Um, he did a course on environmental psychology and was actually the one suggesting the topic. Um, but then, unfortunately, didn't make it. But like this, we uh, had the opportunity to learn a lot yeah, about Yeah, that gave topic. me the chance uh, to jump in for him. So <laughs> exactly. that's great. I mean, really unfortunate for him. But uh, <laughs> that meant I had a great chance to do a really interesting interview. Yeah. So sorry, David, but... Uh, We enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I really also like that there's um, to hear that there's some opportunities for industrial ecologists as well. That uh, the interdisciplinarity is such a big thing for Herdine or in this whole field of yeah, um, because she really stressed it's important to work together and take into account the different perspectives. And I mean that's exactly what we do in IE, right? We have people with so many backgrounds, and we take such a diversity of courses. So. That was uh, a good confirmation from her side that the approach is good and it's it's really interesting to then also hear because I think we have that less. I mean, there are some courses, but the psychological side, I didn't really think about it a lot before. So uh, that was definitely a good, well, good seed of an idea to, <laughs> to further consider in whatever we do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and indeed, like, um, psychology, you would think more of maybe, indeed, a marketing perspective or... Um, I mean, yeah, it, it is a kind social. of marketing, right? It is a kind of marketing, but also that then engineers really really need to think about this or even already how you set up a form for making a subsidy or something like yeah. that. That is really coming back in so many different aspects and uh, not, like, just in, in quotation marks um, for really the social side. Like, how do you get your... Um, your neighborhood more green or something like that, but that's also really playing at the the high level, uh, yeah, high level decisions. I think that's yeah. also really interesting. Yeah, true. And I mean, her usage of the term Earthling, I think we both <laughs> yeah. enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice way to put it. And I, I think it's not in the interview anymore. But in the end, we also talked to her about the the term a bit more, and she she told us how it's really a representation of how close people living on this planet are with this planet we're just we are from this planet we are earthlings so uh, it's it's really nice that she uses the term yeah you might hear it uh, more on this podcast from now on <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe we should just uh, not talk about our listeners but our about our fellow earthlings yes <laughs> i would love that nice yes yeah, so um i hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we did um, you can follow Gerdine on the social media. We will put her her contacts in the description. Check and out her webinar. Indeed. And I think we're only left with our last words, right? Yes, fellow, uh, fellow Earthlings. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. Stay green. Stay cool. Stay tuned. Everybody has a role regarding climate change if they want to. So no matter what your position is or the power that you have, if you want to change or if you want to do something, it's possible. Not Another Green Podcast was created by Katrin, David, Lydia and Mauritia for the Industrial Ecology Study Association Shift, IESA Shift. You can visit our website on IESAShift.nl or find us on Instagram at IESA underscore shift. Any questions, remarks, tips for next topics, or do you want to share your favorite joke about the climate crisis with us? Drop us an email at podcast at Music by Kevin McLeod. <laughs>